Chapter six of a hazard of new fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the uprooting and transplanting of their home that followed, Mrs. March often trembled before distant problems and possible contingencies, but she was never troubled by present difficulties. She kept up with tireless energy, and in the moments of dejection and misgiving which harassed her husband, she remained dauntless and put heart into him when he had lost it altogether. She arranged to leave the children in the house with the servants, while she went on with March to look up a dwelling of some sort in New York. It made him sick to think of it, and, when it came to the point, he would rather have given up the whole enterprise. She had to nerve him to it, to represent more than once that now they had no choice but to make this experiment. Every detail of parting was anguish to him. He got consolation out of the notion of letting the house furnished for the winter. That implied their return to it, but it cost him pangs of the keenest misery to advertise it. And when a tenant was actually found, it was all he could do to give him the lease. He tried his wife's love and patience, as a man must to whom the future is easy in the mass, but terrible as it translates itself piecemeal into the present. He experienced remorse in the presence of inanimate things he was going to leave, as if they had sensibly reproached him, and an anticipative homesickness that seemed to stop his heart. Again and again his wife had to make him reflect that his depression was not prophetic. She convinced him of what he already knew, and persuaded him against his knowledge that he could be keeping an eye out for something to take hold of in Boston if they could not stand New York. She ended by telling him that it was too bad to make her comfort him in a trial that was really so much more a trial to her. She had to support him in a last access of despair on their way to the Albany Depot the morning they started to New York, but when the final details had been dealt with, the tickets bought, the trunks checked and the handbags hung up in their car, and the future had massed itself again at a safe distance, and was seven hours and two hundred miles away, his spirits began to rise and hers to sink. He would have been willing to celebrate the taste, the domestic refinement, of the ladies' waiting-room in the depot, where they had spent a quarter of an hour before the train started. He said he did not believe there was another station in the world where mahogany rocking-chairs were provided, that the dull red warmth of the walls was as cosy as an evening lamp, and that he always hoped to see a fire kindled on that vast hearth and under that aesthetic mantle, but he supposed now he never should. He said it was all very different from that tunnel, the old Albany depot, where they had waited the morning they went to New York when they were starting on their wedding journey. "'The morning, Basil,' cried his wife, we went at night, and we were going to take the boat, but it stormed so. She gave him a glance of such reproach that he could not answer anything, and now she asked him whether he supposed their cook and second girl would be contented with one of those dark holes where they put girls to sleep in New York flats, and what she should do if Margaret especially left her. He ventured to suggest that Margaret would probably like the city, but, if she left, there were plenty of other girls to be had in New York. She replied that there were none she could trust, and that she knew Margaret would not stay. He asked her why she took her then, why she did not give her up at once, and she answered that it would be inhuman to give her up just in the edge of the winter. 
she had promised to keep her and margaret was pleased with the notion of going to new york where she had a cousin then perhaps she'll be pleased with the notion of staying he said oh much you know about it she retorted and in view of the hypothetical difficulty in his want of sympathy she fell into a gloom from which she roused herself at last by declaring that if there was nothing else in the flat they took there should be a light kitchen and a bright sunny bedroom for margaret he expressed the belief that they could easily find such a flat as that and she denounced his fatal optimism which buoyed him up in the absence of an undertaking and let him drop into the depths of despair in its presence he owned this defective temperament but he said that it compensated the opposite in her character i suppose that's one of the chief uses of marriage people supplement one another and form a pretty fair sort of human being together the only drawback to the theory is that unmarried people seem each as complete and whole as a married pair she refused to be amused she turned her face to the window and put her handkerchief up under her veil it was not till the dining-car was attached to their train that they were both able to escape for an hour into the carefree mood of their earlier travels when they were so easily taken out of themselves the time had been when they could have found enough in the conjectural fortunes and characters of their fellow-passengers to occupy them this phase of their youth had lasted long and the world was still full of novelty and interest for them but it required all the charm of the dining-car now to lay the anxieties that beset them it was so potent for the moment however that they could take an objective view at their sitting cosily down there together as if they had only themselves in the world they wondered what the children were doing the children who possessed them so intensely when present and now by a fantastic operation of absence seemed almost non-existence they tried to be homesick for them but failed they recognized with comfortable self-abhorrence that this was terrible but owned a fascination in being alone at the same time they could not imagine how people felt who never had any children they contrasted the luxury of dining that way with every advantage except a band of music and the old way of rushing out to snatch a fearful joy at the lunch-counters of the worcester and springfield and new haven stations they had not gone often to new york since their wedding journey but they had gone often enough to have noted the change from the lunch-counter to the lunch-basket brought in the train from which you could subsist with more ease and dignity but seemed destined to a superabundance of pickles whatever you ordered they thought well of themselves now that they could be both critical and tolerant of flavours not very sharply distinguished from one another in their dinner and they lingered over their coffee and watched the autumn landscape through the windows not quite so loud a pattern of calico this year he said with patronizing forbearance toward the painted woodlands whirling by do you see how the foreground next the train rushes from us and the background keeps ahead of us while the middle distance seems stationary i don't think i ever noticed that effect before there ought to be something literary in it retreating past and advancing future and deceitfully permanent present something like that his wife brushed some crumbs from her lap before rising yes you mustn't waste any of these ideas now oh no it would be money out of fulkerson's pocket end of chapter six